Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to note that you can visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of a variety of resources, including, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly on food and food policy issues, and of course, a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Our guest today is Dr. David Ludwig, MD, PhD a scholar and practicing physician at Children's Hospital Boston and on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. He's one of the leading experts in the world on issues of childhood obesity and nutrition and has worked um, in both areas of treatment of obesity and its prevention. And one of the issues in particular where Dr. Ludwig and his colleagues have published some of the the most uh, important and uh, impactful research is in the intake of soda, sugared beverages, soda pop, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, And this is a hot topic today, both in the scientific world and the policy world, especially with the proposals happening around the country on the possibility of taxing these sort of foods. So welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Great to speak with you, Kelly. So let's first talk about consumption patterns of foods and beverages and how that's changed over time and how has uh, have sugared beverages captured more of the overall dietary intake of the population? Well, if we're going to speak over time, let's really extend our time frame way back, maybe a few hundred thousand years to the dawn of our species, when up until the last few decades, all of our calorie needs outside of infancy uh, would have come from solid foods, and all of our liquid needs would have come from one substance abundantly available called water. Things began to shift dramatically really just in the last half century and um, even more dramatically since the early 1980s when uh, children in particular began to consume uh, a tremendous proportion of their daily calorie needs from liquid beverages, but in particular sugar-sweetened beverages, um, as well as fruit juice. Um, An adolescent male in uh, the year 2000 got on average 15 to 20 percent of his total daily calories from sugar-sweetened beverages. An astounding development. Remarkable. Um, At one point when I was a boy, if you talked about sugar-sweetened beverages, it would have been just a handful of the leading brands of carbonated beverages. Coke and Pepsi leading that charge. But now the the beverage picture is much more diverse than that, isn't it? Not only are there a a vast number of beverages, some of which have health healthy sounding names, vitamin waters, which still contain the same sugar and water just with a sprinkling of vitamins added to it, but portion sizes have um, exploded. You know, back when you were a child, um, the Coca-Cola was served in a thick bottle, and the serving size was six ounces. And then it maybe gradually went up to eight, and then made it to 12, 16, 24 ounces. The big gulp at 7-Eleven, I think, weighs in at uh, uh, 54 ounces. And last I heard in the area, they were aiming to create a 64-ounce serving, only limited by material science. They couldn't get a container that was structurally sound enough at, at the right price for mass production to support what I think is 
four pounds of liquid. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I, you hate to laugh at something as tragic as that, but it is is funny in a way. So the beverage landscape has changed by virtue of increasing portion sizes and many more beverages available to kids. And, of course, their marketing has really gone way up, too. Um, And whole new classes of beverages have been introduced, like sports drinks and energy drinks. So the landscape is very riddled with these sort of beverages. Right. Okay. So um, what's the role in health? What's so bad about having these sugared beverages? Don't people just make up for it in other parts of their diet and break even? Well, sugar-sweetened beverages um, have a variety of um, adverse health effects. Um, first off, they are 100% sugar. Now, there's nothing wrong with a, a teaspoon or two of sugar to sweeten a, a cup of tea, you know, traditionally done, limited number of calories. But um, sugar-sweetened beverages uh, have four or five times the sugar density than those traditional beverages. So people are shocked when they hear how many teaspoons of sugar are right. in one of these. Could you give us some numbers well, on Well, most of them turn out to be 10% sugar. So um, in 10%, um, you have to use the metric scale to get that most efficiently. But um, so a, a 360 milliliter serving, that's 12 ounces, has 36 grams of sugar. Um, and if you multiply that by four, you get the total calories somewhere about 130. All right. So in a 20-ounce bottle of a traditional soft drink, there could be 15 teaspoons of sugar. That's right. Okay. So the numbers are really striking. Okay. So I interrupted you talking about the role. So it's got a huge number of calories. All of those calories are sugar. Um, And um, most concerningly, it's presenting it in a form that can be consumed extraordinarily rapidly. And because of its liquid nature, may slip somehow underneath the body weight regulating radar systems. You know, we're used to eating solid food, having our blood sugar rise, and that and other um, metabolic fuels rise in the bloodstream after a meal, triggering satiety hormones, indicating to the brain that food is coming in and we can feel satisfied and, and stop eating because we have en- enough energy to last us for the next four or five hours. Um, calories in liquid form may not may somehow subvert those um, ancient body weight regulating systems. In addition, they're uh, oftentimes consumed not because of hunger, but because of thirst. So we're satisfying a need for liquid, um, but those extra calories are being deposited in the process. And lastly, it um, they're also they're also consumed for social purposes. You know, because somebody else is drinking it or you're at a party, you want to do something, so you, you drink this stuff. Well, so it deregulates hunger and energy needs from consumption in then, a way that very few other foods do. Then another uh, dimension to add to that is not only social reasons, but just reasons of pure marketing. You know, the heavy-duty marketing of sports drinks would be an example of that, where people may not, in fact, be thirsty, may not, in fact, need the calories, but be drinking them because of some perception of athleticism or whatever it happens to be. Right. Sports drinks are perhaps the most insidious uh, in this way. Um, All but the most elite athletes running, you know, um, marathons um, really do not need to replace um, carbohydrate during the activity. In fact, for most people, it's much easier to, it's very easy to consume more calories from sports drinks than the activity, um, which the sports drinks are intended to support, 
actually burned off. So if one um, wanted to quickly capture what the science shows on the association of consumption of these sugared beverages with important health outcomes like nutrition in general, risk for obesity, risk for diabetes, how would you uh, sum it up? Well, let me um, preface my comments um, by, by recognizing that this uh, remains a controversial area, although um, additional research, some from your group um, uh, and, and also from our group, suggests that much of that controversy uh, relates to conflict of interest, that most of the studies linking sugar-sweetened beverages to adverse health com outcomes um, derives from groups with no connection to the food industry in general and the sugar or soft drink industry in particular, whereas most of the research suggesting no effect um, has that conflict of interest. Now, that's not to say that that research should be dismissed. Um, there is controversy, and controversy is an outstanding rationale for more science. Um, but in my opinion, a strong case can be made for, first and foremost, dental caries, which is, a, you know, a cavities, which is um, uh, a very important public health issue. Secondly, um, in terms of the strength of the evidence, weight gain, um, both based on prospective or cohort studies where people are followed over time and their weight changes can be associated with uh, uh, dietary behaviors and a few randomized control trials. Um, in fact, a, a fascinating study just came out in the journal Pediatrics based in Germany. They simply went into school districts um, in which kids were drinking their usual amount of soft drinks and put in water fountains. And they found that uh, obesity prevalence decreased in the schools with the water fountains and didn't in the schools without. That was done in a randomized controlled trial so that's a high-quality evidence. But lastly, um, we also have to, uh, I also want to point out the studies from very um, large cohorts uh, suggesting a link to diabetes and to heart disease. So correct, correct me if I'm misrepresenting uh, my recollection of things that you've written, but it sounds like from what you've just said and what I've seen you write in the literature that, that decreasing population consumption of sugared beverages should be a priority. Um, there are very few behaviors that of and by themselves alone can shift body weight. In fact, the field of obesity is littered with multi-component studies that cost, in some cases, millions of dollars, but didn't cause any change in body weight or any health outcome. It seems that sugar-sweetened beverages, maybe only equaled by TV viewing, um, is one behavior which, whose modification alone can dramatically alter health. I'd like to come back and talk about some specific public policy things that are being pursued now uh, in this arena. One would be getting rid of soft drinks in schools, and another would be taxing soft drinks. But I'd like to take a little detour before we get to that and ask you your opinion on artificial sweeteners. Right. Um, so these include things like aspartame and sucralose and the range of substances that have right. come and in some cases gone from the food supply. Um, uh, some artificial sweeteners have been taken off the market for concerns for, basically can for the, cancer. Basically what replaces sugar in any diet product, right. including all the diet beverages. Exactly. Right. So some of these have been linked to cancer risk, very controversial, the cyclamates in the, uh, in the 70s and so forth. Um, I think um, there's enough research to um, really, for the most part, um, calm any cancer concerns. 
But there still are um, reasons for, um, I, I think, at, at least caution um, and more study. Most of these substances, while they don't have calories or any significant calories, they're hyper-intense. In some cases, hundreds or thousands of times more sweet on a molecule-to-molecule -molecule basis than table sugar. What effect does that have on the complex neurochemistry of the body that's evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to link a sweet taste with nutrition? Does it trick the brain in some way or the hormone systems so that when that hyperintense stimulation in the mouth occurs, the body is expecting calories to come in, but those calories don't come in because it's calorie-free diet uh, beverage? Does that um, while it may decrease calorie intake at the time, does it alter um, behavior or taste preferences at other times? Um, and a related issue is, does a child who's used to hyper-intense sweetness, either sugar-sweetened beverages, which I would put in that category, or diet beverages, um, come to expect that all foods should be so intensely stimulatory? So that so they just, fruit, they which just is, come to desire higher levels of sweetness across a variety of foods, exactly. potentially. You know, it, historically, a fruit would have been riotously sweet. You know, the apple was associated with sin in the Garden of Eden because it was so delicious and rare. I mean, you wouldn't get fresh fruit um, through much of the year. So an apple would have historically been a delicious treat for a child. Um, today, kids perceive fresh fruit as not sweet at all compared to diet or sugar-sweetened beverages, and vegetables literally inedible. So well, I've heard it, heard it stated that, one, and you mentioned this, but I'd like to take it a step further, that this perception of incoming sweet, of sweetness that enters the mouse with artificial sweeteners signals the body that calories are on the way. And I've heard it presented in the following way. I'd be curious to see if you think this is right, that the body then gears up. It, it activates metabolic and physiological processes to make maximal use of the incoming calories uh, or to get it ready itself for these incoming calories. And that, that the body stays activated um, even when, when, when it doesn't, in fact, get the calories. And that the way to quell that down or the way to deactivate it is to satisfy it with calories later on. Does that make sense? Yes, I think you've said it well. It's really endocrinology 101, okay. um, a phenomenon that has been known for decades, which is the cephalic phase of insulin release. Before we even take a bite of food, the body's preparing itself to assimilate those calories. In fact, it's astounding how good we are at going from um, potentially eating a large meal and getting, in a short period of time, many more calories than we need for the next hour or two, to fasting, and then being able to extract those calories from storage form. Our ability to make those dramatic trans transitions, which involve alterations in hundreds of biochemical pathways throughout the body, is, uh, un is underlied by hormones. So if I'm a parent, um, and, and my child is your patient, and I'm talking to you, and obviously, you would recommend against sugared beverages. That's clear from what you said earlier. But Dr. Ludwig, what should I do about diet beverages? I'd suggest that diet beverages be used as a transitional food. Uh, well, uh, let me modify that, as a transi transitional product, because I won't um, call them foods, because they're really not foods. There's no question that going from a sugar, in my mind, and the ultimate research will 
you know, we'll prove this right or wrong, but uh, the, the, the large-scale randomized controlled trials that are now being done will prove this right or wrong. But uh, there's no question in my mind that going from sugar-sweetened beverages to diet beverages has health benefits, um, less uh, excessive weight gain or weight loss, um, improvement in uh, lipids, maybe blood pressure, uh, dental caries. Um, but that doesn't mean that those diet beverages are better than water. And in fact, um, some evidence suggests that if you take that next step, then you can get uh, the full spectrum of benefits, which would not be available if you stayed with the diet beverages. Thank you. So one final question. Of the various public policy approaches that have been recommended about uh, changing beverage consumption, getting rid of these products in schools is one, but most people agree with that. But the, the one that has uh, drawn the most fire is the possibility of taxes, putting high enough taxes on sugared beverages to decrease their consumption. And then, of course, the revenue-generating potential could be enormous for that. And presumably that money, if the states did it right, could go into nutrition or obesity programs. What do you think about the idea of taxing these beverages? Well, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm sitting with a host who has advocated articulately for um, just such a public health intervention. And I'm worried that if I disagree, I will be persona non grata here. Just well, you'll, kidding. You'll never be invited back for another podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no. I, um, what, what would you honestly I, think I, about I, it? I think that you have, you have really made the case very well. Um, there's, um, if anything, one could argue that presently we have reverse taxation through agricultural subsidies of uh, corn, making high fructose corn syrup, uh, the primary sweetener in soft drinks, so cheap, making these soft drinks so profitable. We're making them, we're t in effect taxing fruits and vegetables that don't have these subsidies um, to promote the consumption and lower the price of sugar-sweetened beverages. So a tax on these things might simply just level the playing field. And if that money can be used uh, appropriately, targeted to obesity prevention, um, or I, I prefer use that money to make fruits and vegetables, which are can be prohibitively expensive, especially to some of our patients in the inner city. To make those less expensive, then I think it's a win-win. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate all your input. My so our guest today was Dr. David Ludwig, a scholar at the Harvard Medical School and at Children's Hospital Boston. Um, again, I um, invite you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of our resources, including other podcasts. Thank you very much.